Well, yeah. This week's movie is about a absurdly rich person in 1981. And That's all true. You and I went to Georgetown, and then I had the additional pleasure of going to LSE, where I met someone who I'm convinced is the child of an actual Russian So fair to say, we've met rich people in the wild. You might call them the most dangerous game. I mean, you're not wrong. Rich people in Hollywood, I have to say, have tastes that do not match those of the rich people I have met. So I'm wondering, what is your favorite ridiculous thing that rich people buy in movies? Okay, I thought we were just going to talk about rich people in general, maybe. Because, you know, a couple weeks ago, I think it was on our Shaft episode, we talked about Nicolas Cage's love of buying dinosaur bones. You know, fair, and I don't think that has been topped within cinema. (laughs) If I have to go with a movie... Have you ever seen Contact? I have seen it in, like, junior year of high school. That's when a lot of people see it, like a science teacher throws it on for some reason. Indeed, that is what happened. We watched it following the AP Physics AP exam. Perfect. That is exactly the venue in which I feel Contact is most seen. But most people remember, like, Jodie Foster at the big satellite, or Matthew McConaughey as, like, the sexy theologian. But the weird rich person I want to focus on, John Hurt, in that movie, plays like an eccentric billionaire who builds a space station so that he can go into orbit where somehow in zero gravity, his like weird medical condition will be slowed down. And so every once in a while, Jodie Foster just like gets a phone call from John Hurt and he's like bouncing around in zero gravity like, oh boy, I'm weird, but I sure am rich. Don't worry, I built a second interdimensional portal. I am very thrown. I forgot about this part of the movie entirely. I recommend you rewatch Contact. It's a good movie. And I think it is maybe the weirdest weird rich guy. Wow. I need to go watch Contact. I was thinking, obviously, the first example is Mr. Deeds and the crazy things that he immediately shows up and purchases. But I also was thinking about indecent proposal sure where imagine being rich enough where you are willing to pay one million dollars just for sex for one night with a woman you will then never be allowed to speak to again i've never seen that movie me neither. i feel like i should me neither and i don't know if you should because i heard a summary of the entire plot on a podcast and apparently it ends with the husband getting angry that she didn't react enough sadly to it where he then assumes that she enjoyed it and it's tantamount to cheating even though he agreed on it right it's like a whole like weird psychological thing right and then i also just think about clueless where Cher spent what must have been a million dollars to get a computer program that chose her outfits for her in the morning. Again, that's awesome. It's incredible, but I can't imagine... This is like, what, 95? I can't imagine anyone spending that much on computer technology in 95. It would be cheaper to hire a stylist to come dress your daughter in the morning. But... That wouldn't be as cool visually, and it wouldn't have all the, like, clothes spinning around. Yeah, that's the thing. Movies have to design for visuals, whereas rich people either design for good taste or terrible taste and nothing in the middle. Right, and that's where you get stuff like 
I think it's a John Mulaney joke about how, like, Donald Trump is a poor person's idea of a rich person. Yes. Where it's like, oh, of course, everything's gold. Right. And then you get the real rich people that don't own anything because it's all about minimalism. Right. It's showing off how little you need. I think minimalism should be fully over. I think it is time to embrace maximalism. Well, all the toys standing around the walls of my apartment would agree with you. So I guess I'm up on the trend. Just a celebration of life and color is what we need as the next design trend. So everything should look like like the house from The Good Place? Yeah, or not mm, less clowny. <laughs> a bit less clowny. I don't know. Maybe some nouveau art nouveau where it's just like all swirls in green. Okay. I can see that. I don't know. It's time for a change. I'm over open concept minimalism. Not that I like fully enclosed. I was going to say, you're ready for things to be cramped. Yeah, cramped. You want to just feel like you're kind of like trapped in one small space for a long duration. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I want to walk into a room and feel like I've been trapped there for a year without being there for longer than 10 minutes. Just really get a sense of what that strange (laughs) feeling might be. Yeah, something I've never experienced, of course. Uh, What a time we live in. What a time. You know what time we didn't live in? 1981. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. Wait, actually, you know what's weird? Yeah. I just realized we record these in advance. This episode is going to come out like almost exactly a year after places in the U.S. started shutting down. Wild. Well, like almost to the day. One of us is just received their second shot, so he might be able to be doing fun things by then. I mean, I I won't be because no one else has their shot. Yeah, and you can still spread it, of course. Right. But I will still be in the last cohort as a 26-year-old man with no underlying health conditions. I have a feeling I will be the last person vaccinated in D.C., But you'll at least get it before the, like, vaccine deniers. You know, that is true. I will get it before the (laughs) anti-vaxxers. Yikes. So anytime you see one of them and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe those people, you can just kind of smugly think, I'll get vaccinated before you. Mm, Good idea. I can't believe they shut down Dodger Stadium vaccination site anti-vaxxers. They're dumb. Insane. Anyway, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to investigating maybe the single least important question facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And could you really make a comedy based off the idea that someone drinks too much in the past? Or are people even likable in those comedies? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at one of the biggest rom-com hits of the 1980s, Arthur, starring Dudley Moore, Liza Minnelli, and John Gielgud. This movie genuinely confused me because the joke just seemed to be that he was drunk. I mean, that's one of the jokes. There are other jokes, but it was just like so much of the movie was him slurring that it felt old to me by the end. Yes, I think that... Like, in a lot of scenes, the first joke is the worst one, because the first joke is usually him walking in and, like, emphasizing how drunk he is for the people he's starting to interact with. Yeah. 
but then it would usually spin in different directions. Like in the best version of it, when Susan's father comes in, like the first joke is just about how drunk Arthur is, but then it turns into this whole bit with a taxidermied moose, and I love every minute of it. That is true. I can't wait to talk about Susan's father. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it, where, you know, like various substance abuse comedies, the jokes where that's the only thing going on aren't particularly interesting, but the hope is that they create opportunities for other kinds of humor. Right. And I like wordplay, but the thing I like more seems to be snappy wordplay. And when you're playing a drunk character, it's hard to do, like, the rapid fire. I guess coming off of His Girl Friday, which I believe was our last episode, the pace slowed down a touch. Yes, very much so. I do think this one manages to thread a needle even with most of its bad jokes, which is that our main character, Arthur Dudley Moore, is clearly an alcoholic. Everybody knows he's an alcoholic. And that's clearly driven a lot by, like, a certain sense of, like, shame yeah that he's masking with alcohol and also with this relentless joke telling that he always laughs at a little too loudly and a little too vigorously and half the time the people that he's talking to are like okay that was a pretty good joke and half the time they're like what the heck are you talking about and he's laughing anyway and i think for the most part some of those map onto how the audience is feeling so there's sometimes where he's laughing at what he thinks is a joke and you could be like i recognize that there's the structure of a joke there but i didn't love it but the way the character is set up, it doesn't matter if I liked the joke. Yeah. I, I have struggled a lot with any sort of substance comedy where... Sure, th- that's fair. The center, like, I don't know. I just can't get on board in general. I've found... I don't know. It's not like I've had direct personal suffering with alcohol. But the idea of a joke just being that someone is an alcoholic, even if sometimes it's treated seriously... I don't really enjoy as much, and it kind of turns me off. And then also this movie falls into the trap that a lot of old movies do, which is someone drinks and drives, which to me is just the height of recklessness and irresponsibility, and I do not enjoy seeing it. It just makes me angry. He's also drinking hard liquor out of a bottle. He is drinking. It is maybe the worst drinking and driving we've seen in a movie. Certainly since, like, Sideways. Yeah, it's so stressful. I texted Will during this movie that the anti-drinking and driving, as well as the anti-smoking campaigns, must be the most successful public health campaigns because my mind is so warped against them. It runs so deep. I mean, that's good. Those are bad things. Yeah, it's great. I'm very impressed with how they managed to do this in what seems to be, like, 20 years Because talking to my parents, they seem to be the first generation that taught their children that drinking and driving is bad. They didn't see it as that big of a deal when they were younger. Yeah, the big, like, public awareness campaigns on that started in the 1980s. Yeah. I'm watching The Nanny and people keep smoking inside, which still just throws me off. I think people smoked inside in this, too. I just can't imagine. I mean, I remember, like, smoking sections in restaurants. Yeah, I remember that too, but I still thought it was so gross back then. And we, I probably hated it even more because my grandfather used to smoke. So we would have to sit in the smoking section, which is is a very unfortunate place to have to sit. I read a really interesting piece by Bob Mondello from NPR that he wrote when the 2011 remake of this movie came out. And he talked a lot about how the portrayal of alcohol 
has changed in film over the decades. And he marked Animal House, which is 1978, as the big turning point where alcohol on screen starts getting portrayed as like, oh, it's funny that they're drunk. And that being a, a real shift, Arthur's coming out in the wake of that. Mm-hmm. And it kind of feels like part of it is like, how far can we push this before it becomes pathetic? And then that's part of the point is that it becomes pathetic. Right. I mean, it makes sense that it became a joke in the late 70s because based off of watching some TV and movies from the 40s, 50s, 60s, it can't have been a joke because everyone was just trashed all the time. (laughs) But also during the peak of the production code, you're not going to be showing a lot of the effects of that. Right. Yeah, I guess you can't really show people drunk even if they aren't drinking straight vodka for six hours straight or whatever they do in the thin man exactly whereas then like who's afraid of virginia wolf which is helping to weaken the production code remember we tracked how many drinks each person took over the course of the movie yeah that's not a game you can do a drink along drinking game no that would be bad and it's depicted as bad in the movie yes i will say Eliza Minnelli is doing good work in this. Yeah. I mean, it was going to be a tough competition for Dudley Moore, but I do think Liza was my favorite part in the movie. And I was surprised that she was 35. Mm -hmm. She already had an Oscar, an Emmy, and two Tonys at this point. No Grammy. She's not an EGOTter, right? She is if you count a non-competitive Grammy Legend Award. Like a Lifetime Achievement kind of thing. Right. Content- so she's like That's an asterisk. Contentious EGOT. in the EGOT community, I know. John Gielgud, who plays Hobson, is an EGOT. Really? Yeah. His Grammy is for a recording he did of a one-man Shakespeare show that he did on stage. Yeah. I mean, EGOTers are people, usually people that have read audiobooks or write music for movies. Yeah. Most of them are composers. Makes sense. It's what Tracy Jordan did to try an EGOT. That's right. He did. <laughs> So we talked last episode that you knew basically nothing about Arthur and we've gotten some sense of it, but like ultimately, you know, what, what's your feeling about this movie? Um, I enjoyed it, but I was kind of expecting to enjoy it more based off of what I was reading beforehand about how big it was. Yeah, it was a huge hit. It was huge. Everyone loved it. Did someone recommend this to us? Yeah, this was a listener suggestion. And I can understand the appeal of the movie. It just for some reason didn't hit with me. Yeah, I feel like I appreciated it, but I didn't love it. I, like, got it. Like, I got a lot of it. But I didn't love any of it. Like, there was nothing... I loved the moose. That, fair. The moose and the bridesmaids' dresses. Oh my goodness. I loved the bridesmaids' dresses. Do we want to talk about those now? Yeah, let's just get in, because those were maybe the highlight of the movie for me. The last sequence of this movie is at a church. A wedding is taking place. Arthur bursts into where the bride and the bridesmaids are getting ready. The bride's dress is kind of weird, but, like, whatever. It's got this, like, high lace neck. Whatever. The important thing are the bridesmaids' dresses. I am trying to see if I can find a picture, because they're hard to explain. They're bright pink. They are tiered, shoulderless things. So there's, like, this one tier that sort of hangs loosely down to, like, the middle of their stomach. Then the next one hangs down to, like, the middle of their thighs. And then the They're next like one... ancient Greek dresses. They have these big it's like pink bows on the back. Edwardian images of ancient Greek dresses had a baby with an Edwardian dress. Does that make sense? I'm sure it doesn't. It, 
you know, because I know you, I get what you're going for. Yeah. They also had these, like, transparent hats. These wide-brimmed transparent hats. Yeah, it's all tulle. Just tulle for days. Even the bride's dress is very tulle And there's just, like, six women all wearing these hats with these big bows and these tiered pink dresses. Honestly, iconic. It's certainly a look. (laughs) If you Google Arthur movie 1981 bridesmaid dress, you can get a picture of the back of the dresses, which is honestly the best part. If you told me this dress appeared in the movie 27 Dresses, I would believe you without batting an eye. Yeah, I mean... It would be really funny if they had just thrown that in the closet. But I guess they do show the wedding for every dress. Yeah. Wait, Greta Gerwig was in the 2011 Arthur movie? Yeah, so the 2011 remake of Arthur, 30 years after the original, stars Russell Brand as Arthur. Greta Gerwig is the Liza Minnelli role. She plays a, like, illegal New York City tour guide. And that's how you know she's, like, super free-spirited. It's like, A, she doesn't have a license, and B, she just, like, goes on all kinds of weird and free-spirited tour guide kind of things. They make her much more of, like, a manic pixie dream girl. And in that one, it's Arthur's mother who is sick of his, like, childish ways. And so she's forcing him to marry, like, her assistant, Like, Susan Johnson is the mom's assistant or something, so then the assistant will be able to manage Arthur's life and keep him from acting out. Okay. That sounds not great. Yeah, it sounds worse. It sounds worse, and it has a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes, so I would say it is worse. Yeah, there's also a sequel to this movie that is also kind of poorly received called Arthur 2 on the Rocks, which is... A good name for an Arthur sequel. Yes, that does work. That one is super weird. It's like the entire plot of Arthur 2 is a revenge plot by Susan's father. Because Susan is apparently still in love with Arthur. So Susan's father buys out the Bach company. And his condition of the buyout is that like it's great for everybody. But they have to cut off Arthur from his $750 million. So they agree to do it. So then Arthur and Linda are like living in poverty... Susan tries to convince Linda that if she really cares about Arthur, she would leave him. Also, Susan is recast because the original actor did not come back. And then Granny, Martha, tells Arthur, like, yo, I've been hearing some shady stuff. And then they, like, successfully get Susan's dad caught for, like, all kinds of, like, shady criminal underworld dealings. Or just murder. That man has murdered a few people in his time. Right, like... It doesn't feel like a character leap for him to have, like, a lot of shady stuff in his background, but the entire movie is just, like, a revenge scheme. And it's set, like, five years later. It's like, it feels like people could move on at this point. I don't know. We'll talk about this more, but Susan's wild. Susan is a weirdo, and her dad is a murderer. It's, like, generally in movies like this, there are certain types, and that's not a terrible thing. Susan was a character that fit so closely to a type, but existed outside of it in the weirdest way, where she was like the devoted girlfriend, but just a little off, where she was like, took it to a weird place. Well, it's also interesting because she's devoted, and he has no interest in her. No interest, has never showed interest. I don't think they've ever dated. Like, it's a full arranged marriage. It's very weird. Should we start talking about the romance of the movie? I mean, we haven't even really talked about the movie itself. Oh, Um, that's fair. 
We've alluded to its success, which was not a given. The movie opened on July 17th, 1981 in ninth place. Like, it opened wide on 700 screens. So it's pretty disastrous, but it becomes this word-of-mouth hit. And ultimately, it became the fourth highest grossing film of 1981. That's crazy. Raiders of the Lost Ark on Golden Pond and Superman 2. That's honestly insane. Like, whoa. That's wild. It won two Oscars for Best Supporting Actor for John Gielgud as Hobson and for Best Original Song for Arthur's Theme, which was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks. Written by Bruce Bagarach's son by Christopher Cross, baby. Yeah. It is wild. When you get caught between the moon and New York City. Like, when they got to that line... Honestly, I was thriving. I was like, this is insane. I love it. I'm obsessed. This song's pretty good. (laughs) When you get caught between the moon and New York City. That's the first line they wrote. They started with that and built the song around it. Oh, completely. No, I know that for a fact. Oh, (laughs) really? (laughs) Yes. I just love, what is the full title? It's Arthur's Theme, parentheses. Um, Arthur's Theme, parentheses, best that you can do. And... I feel like they don't really sing best that you can do much in the song. I like the idea that that's like what they handed in when they were asked to submit a song. Here, it's the best that we could do. Or at least like somebody was like, look, we need a song. It is true that like Christopher Cross was originally hired to do the music, but the director, Steve Gordon, was like, Christopher Cross has never written a score. So they hired Bacharach to write the score and they were like, Cross, you focus on the song. And so I like the idea that they handed him just directions and they were like, here, please write Arthur's theme. Do the best that you could do. And they just like wrote that at the top of the sheet of paper, like to do Arthur's theme, parentheses, best that you can do. And he handed that same sheet back in with music attached to it. And they're like, I, I guess this is what the song is called. I mean, our- and Criss Cross is just like, all right, when you get caught between the moon and New York City. I will say Arthur's probably doing the best that he can do. Yeah. But I swear, I was, like, listening to the song because that came up, like, Arthur's theme, the best that you could do. And I was listening to the song and I was like, this doesn't match the title at all. And it's driving me insane. That song is number 79 on the AFI's song list. Why? That's crazy. I can name songs. I could probably name over 100 songs from movies that are better than that one. But how many of them tell you what to do when you get caught between the moon and New York City. I guess none of them, because... It sounds like a song from the Disney's uh, Oliver and Company. The song doesn't even really tell you what to do when you get caught between the moon and New York City. You fall in love. I guess. I don't really... I just did not get that song at all. (laughs) Uh, It's nominated for two other Oscars. Best Actor for Dudley Moore, who lost to Henry Fonda in On Golden Pond. And Best Original Screenplay, which they lost to Chariots of Fire, which went on to win Best Picture, of course. Oh my god. I'm scrolling through the songs because I didn't believe you. And let me name some of the songs that are after this. Like, ranked lower? Ranked lower. Uh, I've Had the Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing. That's insane. That should be like a top ten song. Putting on the Ritz from Young Frankenstein. Lose Yourself from 8 Mile, which I don't love, but I will say is a better song. Ain't Too Proud to Beg by The Temptations, and then All That Jazz and Hakuna Matata, and Old Time Rock and Roll. 
All of those are ranked lower than Arthur's theme, parentheses, best that you can do, close parentheses. How many of those songs were the best that they can do? Like, Hakuna Matata wasn't even the best that Elton John could do in that movie. You know, I mean, (laughs) uh, I feel like a crazy person. (laughs) The song right before it is 9 to 5, so at least they got that right. It is better than Arthur's theme, parentheses, best that you could do, close parentheses. Uh, the song also won the Golden Globe for original song. Uh, Dudley Moore won a Golden Globe for this. John Gielgud did. Liza Minnelli was nominated. And they won the Golden Globe for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy. I feel so over the Golden Globes after this Here's the thing. The Golden Globes are always nonsense. And I feel like every year people are thrown off by the Golden Globes being nonsense. I know. But I'm just like, why do we still give them this much power? Because they're on TV. I mean, yeah. It is true that they are on TV. Like, the actual reason the Golden Globes usually matter, and I'm a little hazy on the calendar this year. Actually, by the time this episode comes out, the Globes will have already happened. We'll know who won. But the reason they normally matter is that the ceremony usually happens, like, right before Oscar nominations open up. So it's not that they directly affect people, but, like, sometimes... You know, people see Meryl Streep give a big anti-Trump speech at the Golden Globes, and they're like, yeah, sure, I'll nominate her for an Oscar for Florence Foster Jenkins. Oh, yikes. Also, they provide, like, free-flow alcohol at the Golden Globes, which they don't at other award shows. Right, which is the other appeal. They do a good job of making it fun for the celebrities, so then they want to go. Right, but yeah, they are, like, 80 people... Like, there are fewer members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association than there are listeners to this podcast. But, Will, we have millions of listeners, so I don't know what you could mean. Anyway, Arthur. Yeah, I mean, I could keep talking about some of the people involved in this. You know, Dudley Moore comes out of, like, British satire in the 1960s. John Gielgud had been this, like, classically trained Shakespearean actor. Like I said, his EGOT comes in part from a Grammy for a Shakespeare recording. I think one of the interesting and and kind of sad things about this movie is it's written and directed by Steve Gordon. This is the only movie he ever directed because he died of a heart attack a year after this movie came out and he was only 44 years old. That's so upsetting. I feel like I would have loved to see more work from him. Yeah, it's the kind of thing of like, I enjoyed enough about this movie that I would be very happy to see more from him. Especially like during the comedy boom of the 1980s. Right, because I mean, if this is his first movie, I think that he could definitely produce something even better because this movie does have its moments but that's upsetting yeah now before we uh get into the main thing i want to just tell you one last thing which is if you look at the poster for this film you'll see the tagline and uh can you can you look up the poster for arthur yeah i'm pulling it up now the bathtub one or the blue car one bathtub it should be on either but if you look at the bathtub one the tagline is stretched across the top of the poster don't you wish you were arthur And I was just wondering what your answer is to that, Mark. Don't you wish you were Arthur? I mean, the money seems nice, but the debilitating alcoholism that affects your work and personal life seems like trouble. Yeah, it is a bizarre tagline for a movie about a raging alcoholic who has, like, no meaningful personal connections except for the butler. And the movie's not, like, the movie is making you aware that his alcohol, like, his alcoholism is the root of his problems. Right. 
It's a very strange tagline. They had a real hard time marketing this movie. Apparently, they threw out like six different marketing campaigns before landing on this bad one. And so it's like when you look at that tagline and you realize that the trailer is structured around that idea too, but full of scenes of him being an alcoholic. You're like, yeah, I understand why this movie opened in ninth place. Yeah, I can imagine this movie was difficult to advertise. And I can also imagine that that is the best that they could do. <laughs> Don't you wish you were Arthur, parentheses, the best, <laughs> best thing you can do. The best that you could do. Uh, <laughs> that should be the tagline of the movie, too. Just best that we can do. <laughs> I mean, also, this didn't have a big studio behind it. It's an Orion Pictures release in the early 1980s, as they are really hitting their stride. It was originally developed by Paramount, but they dropped it, which is how Orion cut their hands on it. Because it said Orion, and then, like, Orion is doing a Paramount picture, <laughs> was essentially on a title card. Yeah, and that's because, like, Paramount had financed enough of it in development that they still got the credit there. That makes sense. Orion has one of the best production company logos. I love it. Where it's the constellation and then the stars swirl into a circle for the O of Orion. I love it. I mean, we're going to talk about a movie next week that has one of my favorite production cards of any company. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I was going to say RKO, but it seems to predate RKO. Yeah, Radio Pictures. Radio Pictures. Orion did Silence of the Lambs. And then, like, collapsed right after winning five Oscars, right? Pretty much, yeah. Um, Somebody owns the name now. I forget who actually does. But that Orion logo has been appearing in front of a couple, mostly, like, horror stuff in the last couple years. It is now owned by MGM. Which is a company that itself barely exists. Right. Does someone own MGM? No. Warner Brothers distributes most of their movies, but they're not owned by anybody. There has been, like, pretty consistent rumbling for, like, the last two years that they might sell a decent chunk of their back catalog to try to keep going. The smart money is that Apple might try to buy it because the Apple library is very small. Yeah, that would probably be a good move on their part. Yeah. Need something to watch while waiting for a new season of Ted Lasso. I guess, I don't know if they could afford it with trying to pay for inventing a new car. (laughs) It seems to be where their money is going. I mean, I feel like they don't have a shortage of funding there. I don't understand how every company now is just trying to make a car. Why are Apple and Google making cars? I think it becomes the point of, like, you have so much money that it becomes like like the gong show. Like, you just invite employees to be like, all right, what idea do you have? We should try to make a car. All right, fine. Like, yeah, here's a billion bucks. Go see if you can make a car. Do Google and Apple have internal shark tanks? Yeah, I would love that. Honestly, that's what Apple TV Plus should have, is they should have their own version of Shark Tank with Tim Cook just (laughs) thumbs-upping or thumbs-downing weird ideas to employees. And then once the idea gets through, the creators have to fight to the death for his amusement. They have to, like, play Wipeout. Right. Imagine Tim Cook sitting in a box (laughs) as people are presenting while doing Wipeout challenges. I would love it. Well, that's it. It's like you have a timer that is like, say you have like two minutes in which you have to do the wipeout challenge and make your presentation. <laughs> so how fast you make it through the wipeout determines how much time you get for your presentation. Now, Hollywood, give us a call. I think wipe. This is one of our best ideas. Wipe in a out long into time. the shark tank is an idea that could work. 
Yeah, this is it. This is something. And then, like, the floor's lava. You can just CGI some sharks into the actual water tank that they get knocked into. And the sharks then CGI eat them. (laughs) You, like, convert to, like, King Kong-style, like, shark stop motion. One of the greatest parts of the floor's lava is the commitment to the idea that the people don't survive. So that is making me think I need to watch. Have you not watched it? I've heard good things, but I have not gotten around to it. It is dumb, and it's very entertaining. And once someone falls in the lava, you don't see them again. Good. Excellent. Fantastic. Back to when did that come out? Like uh, over a year ago now? No, that that was a pandemic show. That was like August. Oh, yeah, it was. Time has lost all meaning. Look, Mark, I know that was TV reviews, parentheses, the best that you can do. <laughs> can we change the show name to We Love the Love, parentheses, best that we can do? Maybe I'll just make the episode title Arthur parentheses nineteen eighty one parentheses the best that you can do. <laughs> it's it's such a good subtitle. You can add it to anything. It, it is on the level of like the Mamma Mia sequel having the best title no matter what. Where it's like Mamma Mia, here we go again. Works if you're really pumped or really dreading it. <laughs> it's maybe the best sequel name, and it was just gifted to them on a platter. Mama Mia 3 is where you're going to struggle. Well, it's ju- you just call it Mama 3 and be done with Mama it. Mama 3 <laughs> Two Mama, two Mia. <laughs> Mama Mia, Tokyo Drift. <laughs> I mean, honestly, love it. <laughs> I assume someone has made this joke. Oh, I'm sure. Anyway, should we start talking about the romance of Arthur? Yeah, I think that's fine. <laughs> All right. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of the film into five key points. Will, what is point number one? one okay so i tried to kind of laser focus in on stuff that is defensively romance so i'm skipping like the opening sequence of the movie where we're introduced to arthur riding around in his car just like drinking picking up sex workers like that's where we find out a lot of our backstory with him but i'm skipping instead to the morning after that point number one arthur has a meeting with his father i'm not gonna marry her i've told you that a thousand times Fine. If that's your decision, Arthur, the family has no choice. I'm sorry, Arthur, very sorry. But as of this moment, you are cut off. You mean cut off from you and grandmother and the family? You don't, you don't mean cut off from the, the money, Arthur. Who is very scary yes. and has arranged a marriage for him. Right, like you said earlier, this is a straight-up arranged marriage. Arthur is like old money. And he's going to be set up to marry Susan Johnson, who is obsessed with him. She's new money, though. Like, her dad grew up poor and murdered his way to wealth. Right. Arthur doesn't seem to have a mom. Yeah. For whatever reason, Arthur's mom isn't in the picture. He was basically raised by John Gielgud, Hobson, his butler. But he is very much a, like, man-child who drinks all day and plays with his toy trains. And he owns a throne and... Honestly, that bathtub is, like, if I had, if I was rich and could afford one thing out of his apartment, I would want that bathtub. It's a pretty great bathtub, and it has the, like, intercom attached to it, too, so you can demand things. Yeah, it's big enough that I could actually lay all the way down comfortably, I feel. That's the real luxury for you. Yeah, I do not fit in most bathtubs, so every time I'm slightly disappointed because I can't get perfectly comfortable well you know mark it's a bath parentheses the best that you can do so (laughs) arthur is 
being arranged for Susan, and then he goes shopping at Bergdorf Goodman. It's noteworthy that, like, the real leverage over Arthur is that he's told repeatedly he needs to marry Susan or else he'll be cut off. Oh, right. He will lose access to his $750 million. Right. And at one point when he's meeting with his dad, he's prepared to walk out and say, like, fine, cut me off until his dad points out exactly how much money he's giving up. Yeah. So he's like, you'll be cut off for your money. And then when the dad drops in $750 million, Arthur is reeled back in, which, you know, that is not a insubstantial sum. Sometimes we watch these movies and you always do some research of like, okay, what is $50 now? With $750 million, even 40 years later, you're like, yeah, that's a, a heck of a lot of money. Uh, I did look it up and I want you to guess. Is it like, is it over a billion? Yes. Okay. Is it over $2 billion? It is more money than you would expect. How much is it? billion. So that is more money than I would expect. Yeah. That's... Oh, that seems wrong. (laughs) That does seem wrong. I mean, I guess you're going off based off of cost with inflation. So things that cost that much back then instead of just, like, wealth. But still, his money alone, like, his inheritance is billions today so a lot of money we're talking about so he agrees that he'll marry susan and his dad's like great the wedding is set for one month from today i also do love that it's a situation where he has to marry susan not for money to save the family like right it's purely for it's purely to make him grow up most of the time i feel like in these movies the trope of the old money trying to marry new money to save the family but the family's fine here it's just arthur that's a mess but he goes shopping at Bergdorf Goodman, and this is where we meet Linda. So Liza Minnelli walks into this movie wearing a bright yellow coat with a matching bright yellow duffel bag and a red cowboy hat. Her outfit She is in the this most movie. conspicuous person. Yeah, she is. She does not blend in. She did not dress for shoplifting. No. It, I do love that they, like, really put her in colors when everyone else, including Arthur, is fairly drab. I also like that they do that without her becoming, like, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Because it's one thing when that happens in, like, 2010, and it's somebody in, like, sparkly overalls. And it's it's the Greta Gerwig character in the 2011 remake. Right. Where it's like, I'm doing the, like, edgy version of the New York City tour. But it's just, like, she is a normal person, like, working in a diner, not, like, saying profound things about rethinking your life. She just has these different colors in part because she, like, represents an alternative version of life that isn't total nonsense right it's not that she's you know the perfect girl she's just a struggling actress in queens who works as a waitress at a diner lives with her dad and is generally happy and does some stealing in the most conspicuous outfit but as arthur points out it's almost the perfect crime because women don't wear ties well some do it's not quite the perfect crime like that's another good conversation where they ultimately land on the perfect crime would be a woman murdering a tie right John Gielgud is fun. He is very fun. I did not expect him to die. Yeah. (laughs) That was a twist. He originally turned down the movie because he thought it was too smutty and vulgar. And then they offered to double his salary and he said, okay, I'll do this movie. We all have our number, Will. What's funny is like in all the reading about making the movie, he apparently like very much did not get the jokes, even with his own character, where the joke is always that he's like entirely deadpan. And so he would do takes and then turn around to Steve Gordon and be like, 
Like, was that funny, or do we need to do it again? I mean, that sounds like good casting then. Right. He didn't have to do as much acting. He just was. He just was what they needed. So anyway, like we said, Linda steals this tie, and Arthur notices it and is kind of captivated by it. So he and Hobson follow the store detective out as he's tracking Linda down the street. The store guard who has a badge. And he accosts Linda on the street and is like, hey, you stole a tie. What the heck? And Arthur decides to, like, jump in and lie for her and with her being like, oh, hey, honey, did you not put that tie at the register to be bought by me? Like, what the heck? And she's like, oh, I was so silly. I do love that she is, like, trying to call the police on the security guard. Yeah, like, she is ready to pull her own bluff. Right, she is She is going to lie her way out of it, even if Arthur doesn't show up. But Arthur successfully helps, in part by just saying, like, hey, store guard, like, you know me, I'm Arthur Bach, just go back, add it to my bill, no worries. Right. And, you know, he can afford it, because he has billions of dollars. He throws around money meaninglessly. At one point... He orders 13 of the same sweater, and when asked why he got the same color, he says, I don't like sweaters, which isn't even true, because he wears a lot of good sweaters in this movie. Yeah, he's not the most consistent character. And so then they get flirty, and she gives him her number. Yeah, he successfully convinces her, like, this is fun, let's hang out. Linda then gets on the bus to go to Queens. True story, Liza Minnelli was not paying attention on one take and got on a real bus instead of the one for the movie. (laughs) Oh, boy. She was probably distracted thinking about the time she cheated on Martin Scorsese with Baryshnikov while she had been cheating on her husband with Martin Scorsese. That is a thing that happened. That is. I found that out today. That is a wild story. She's lived a life. She has lived a life. Not... The happiest life, but she has lived a good life. So I think this takes us to point number two. Yeah. They go on a date. They do. Um, Linda has told her dad a little bit about Arthur. Her dad is great. Her dad is very funny. He does the, it's like the similar role to the dad in Coming to America, where he balances like protecting his daughter, but also wanting money pretty well. Yes, he's quite a bit less craven than old Mr. McDowell in Coming to America. Yeah, though. he is a much better person, but he does that like uh whole. There's the great moment of like him being suspicious of the fact that Arthur doesn't work. And then when she tells him that Arthur's a millionaire, he immediately says, you have my permission to marry. Yeah, that like, that was a great line. I really liked the dad. He's great. So then they do their whole date. They go on a date. They like eat on a rooftop with an aggressive musical group. They go to an arcade that has a computerized sex tester. Okay. What does this mean? They don't use it. They're like playing skee-ball or something, but it right next to them is a computerized sex tester. I assume it's like the love tester in an episode of Bob's Burgers where you put your hands on it and then it tells you, I guess it just reads the electricity in your hands or something and it shows a light at how hot you are. One time I was on a date and there was one of those machines and it was like a kiss meter. And so you're supposed to put your hands on it and it would say like basically describe your kissing. And I got sexless. 
Yikes. <laughs> That's rough. Yeah. You know, I'm still here. I survived. You survived. I don't know why you would be that rude as a machine. <laughs> like, that's the thing. It's like, like half of the things were bad. The person before me got clammy, which I think is worse than sexless. Yeah. Because clammy feels more like viscerally gross. Clammy is like making the other person physically uncomfortable with your body temperature instead of just your skill. Right. So they stand near the computerized sex tester, and then driving home, there's this really lovely moment where Arthur's like, you know, I've never taken care of anyone, but if you got sick, I would take care of you. And you're kind of like, I don't know that I trust Arthur to take care of a sick person, but this is a very sweet moment. Right. I would not want him to take care of me, but it is a sign of growth. Although we do see later in the movie that he does do a really good job of taking care of Hobson. Yeah, that is true. But it is the first sign of actual growth out of Arthur. Right. It is Arthur learning to care for people besides himself. And he has a hard time getting there in part because most other people in his life have not really cared about him all that much. Yeah. It's not entirely his fault that he is this messed up. He has a very contentious relationship with his father. And even his grandma, who he meets the next day, he's met her before, but (laughs) meets up with the next day, has a weird relationship too. Um... Martha is a heck of a character. I love Martha, but she is wild. So Martha is Arthur's grandmother, and she also is like, if you don't marry Susan, we will cut you off. But you should then bang Linda on the side. Like, have fun. Sex is great. I'm Arthur's grandma Martha, and I love sex. Yeah, I do love that. She was like, I do not see the problem here. You will still be in love with Linda. You will still be with Linda. You just have to marry Susan. What's the disconnect? She also has the weirdest decor in her house. Well, again, it's just weird rich people. I like that Arthur has like very juvenile artwork, like a crappy image of Superman and stuff like that. But they're all framed and lit and mounted like they're fine artwork. Maybe they're original paintings from the comic book man. They they would look better. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, after the meeting with the grandma, I think that brings us to point three. So Arthur now has caved to the point that he goes to Susan's father's house to propose. What the hell is the matter with you? Nobody knocks on a door at three o'clock in the morning. You're so drunk you can hardly stand up. And you're engaged. This is where he has a very contentious interaction with Susan's definitely murderous father. Yeah, and you get the very classic, like, one of my possessions is the greatest, and that is Susan, and you must care for her, or I will kill you. And it is the actual trope distilled into every line, like, word for word, he manages to hit the nail on the head of, my daughter is my possession, and I am an aggressively masculine man and will use violence to deal with my problems. And it doesn't feel quite as tired as it usually does because Arthur is, like, so out of it in this scene. He's so thoroughly drunk because he doesn't want to be doing this. As we've alluded to, he spends a lot of time interrogating the presence of this taxidermy moose head none of which is in the script and the actor who played susan's dad stephen elliott is just getting like increasingly frustrated in each take like will you please shut up about the moose so his anger is not entirely acting in that part of the movie but he also like trying to insist on stability is insisting that arthur come work for him as part of a condition of the wedding and stop drinking uh i can't believe that he just like openly admitted to killing someone Yeah, 
He is a straight-up murderer, and he tries to murder again. And it never really got followed up on. Anyway, um, Arthur then proposes to Susan, who is a weirdo. Susan is, like, obsessed with Arthur from the get-go. Like, everything about her presentation, everything about the way this character is set up, is like, this is a prim and proper rich daughter who is going to expect prim and proper stuff. She is hopelessly devoted to Arthur, but she also is, like, clearly witnessing all of his terrible qualities, not in a, like, Linda... I know that there is a better person underneath here. Just in a, like, this is who you are, and I'm weirdly very into it. Yeah, she's like, you can disappear for months at a time, and I won't get mad. It's like, Susan, respect yourself. Right. Ask for more than below the bare minimum. But Arthur gives her his grandmother's ring, or, like, gigantic rock attached to a metal band, more accurately. And he's falling over himself drunk as he's proposing. And he is very upset. So he drives out to Queens. And Linda's pissed off. She didn't want to see him because he's getting engaged. And he tries to give her $100,000. Like, please, just like, I want to help you take care of yourself, even though we can't be together. And she refuses it, much to her father's chagrin. I love him listening at the door, getting alternately excited and bummed out at what's going on. I mean, it would be tough to lose out on $100,000. Yeah. But he understands. And then Arthur leaves. Which takes us to point four. They're going to have an engagement party. And Hobson pulls a sneaky little maneuver. He's a sneaky guy. Because he's noticed that Linda, as we said before, has caused Arthur to show the first sign of growth that Hobson probably has ever seen. So Hobson goes over to Linda's house and actually invites her to the engagement party. No, Arthur is far too fine a person to be involved in something as devious as this. You really look out for him, don't you? Yes. And it is a job that I recommend highly. And she says, like, oh, I'm invited? And he goes, no, I didn't say you were invited. I said you should be there. (laughs) That's a good way. That was a good line. And so she shows up. So she goes to the engagement party, which is clearly a weird experience for her. Yeah, she, like, starts flirting with a man and pretending to be an old friend of Arthur as a way to kind of establish herself at the party. She and Arthur run away to the stables where there are like 20 horses? I assume that this house is out in the country. That's fine. It's the number that's astonishing to me. Yeah, there's a lot of horses there. But, you know, sometimes your horse gets lonely. They have a really nice interaction talking about their lives. But then, right as they're like, you know, maybe going to be getting some kissing going on, Susan shows up. Right. And Liza comes up with the best cover story. Right. That she's like here to beg for money for her husband, who is an old friend of Arthur's, and he's dying and their kids are dying and he lost all of their money gambling. Oh, woe is me. It's it's like, you poor dear, you must take all of our money. What's funny about it is that at the end, when Susan learns that Arthur is in love with Linda, she's like, wait. Linda, like, what about your husband? What about Harold? (laughs) Linda just goes, who? So, I mean, that's kind of it. Then once Susan interrupts it, nothing else happens there. After that, Hobson starts getting really sick, and Arthur focuses all of his attention on taking care of Hobson. He moves into the hospital with him and just spends all of his time taking care of Hobson. So the next time we're doing anything romantic, it's the day of the wedding. Which we don't find out about at first, because first... 
it's just Arthur getting super drunk at a bar for the first time since taking care of Hobson because Hobson has died. Getting married soon. Great. I don't love her. Oh, no. I don't love her. Well, no, mate, a scene. No, I'm sorry, but this is other girl. And then we find out it is his wedding day. Yeah, as he's sloshed in the bar, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be getting married in five hours. Right. But he decides, not anymore. And he runs to the diner that Linda works at. And he does the confession of love and asks Linda to marry him. And and she says, yes. He goes to the church. They go to the church. Yeah. And so Arthur. This is where we see that wedding dress and those bridesmaids right. dresses. And Arthur tells Susan that it's over. Susan's dad punches him in the face repeatedly. And I think stabs him at one point. No, he grabs a knife and was going to stab him, but is stopped from doing so. Yeah, so... Like, Susan's dad was gonna murder Arthur. Arthur almost died, but then everyone clears out of the church, except for Arthur and Linda, who have a nice moment. Yeah, they have a sort of impromptu exchange of vows. Linda asks him, do you promise to love me and obey me and be a good boy? (laughs) And then they go outside and Arthur's grandmother tries one more time to persuade him. Or like, no, his grandmother's like, I refuse to have a Bach be poor. You can keep your money. And there's some back and forth about whether or not they'll take it. But ultimately, they take the money. Right. And they all live happily ever after. Yeah, so it's nice that Granny's classism saves Arthur and Linda from living in poverty. Which Arthur was adjusting to the idea of and was willing to accept to be with Linda. Right. All right, Will. After watching all of this movie, do you find the romance of Arthur believable? I find it sweet. I don't know that I find it believable. You mean you don't think that Arthur and Linda would be ready to get married after one date and then two drunken conversations? And then I think several weeks of no interaction. Yeah. Is wild. Yeah, it's, it's a very short timeline. And of course, the whole movie takes place in a month. And for most of that, he's taking care of his dying butler. <laughs> yeah. So when you put it that way, I would say, no, I don't particularly find it believable. Yeah, the This movie really pushes the speedy falling in love to a new level. So every week we rate the believability of a romance on a 10-point scale where 0 means we believe none of it and 10 means we believe all of it. So where would you rate Arthur? I believe that Arthur and Linda could fall in love, but the rate at which they fall in love is cuckoo bananas. To me, Susan's devotion to Arthur is also a believability problem. I'm going to give like a 3? I think I, yeah, I was also thinking a 3. Do you think that Arthur or Linda is dateable? Arthur... No, because I think that the things that would make him frustrating to date, also, it frankly, go beyond his alcoholism. Yeah, there's definitely a lot there that is a problem. You know, I appreciate somebody who likes to tell a joke, but Arthur is too into his own jokes. Yeah, I mean, I definitely did not laugh at some of his jokes because he laughed at them too much. Right. Linda, probably. Yeah, yeah. she seems dateable. She's just a queen's girl. Working a job as a waitress, trying to make ends meet as an actress, living with her dad. Do you think the two of them would stay together? I mean, I don't think we've seen them together enough to tell. (laughs) I mean, that one date was pretty nice. Yeah, they're 
inter- their one good interaction was good, but literally we saw one date, so it's tough. But sure, why not? It is hard to judge. Depends on how good the prenup is. If you did have to choose one person this movie to date, who would you choose? So I think the answer is Martha, the grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Because. Sex positive queen. <laughs> That, here's the thing. I would be able to live a very comfortable lifestyle because she would insist upon it. But also, I would be free to date someone else if I wanted to because she is clearly fine with yeah. that. Sex positive queen Martha. Free with the cash. Free with the love. All right. So a lot of the movies we cover have been adapted into stage musicals. Will, should they bring Arthur to Broadway? I think it would work pretty well. I think you could manage this well on stage. In part because it's so thin already that I think it is ripe for adaptation. And of course, there is this 2011 remake that is apparently very bad. It's been adapted in India three different times. I think the hardest thing about adapting it to a musical would be not relying on him being bad at dancing because he's drunk as a crutch. I mean, you could flip the other way where maybe he's a really good dancer when he's drunk. Right. Something like that. But just I can easily picture a musical leaning too much into that of like, oh, ho, ho, he can't dance even though everyone else is. But I think it could yeah. work. I don't think it needs I to think be it done. I think it would work pretty well. I'm honestly surprised. I honestly assumed you would say that there had been an Arthur musical in London in the 90s. I assumed there would have been. But as far as I can tell, there has not. That's that's crazy. I think it would work. I would love to hear like two actors falling in love singing about when you get caught between the moon New and York New York City. City. I think you could make it work, but again, I don't know if it needs to be done. Arthur the Musical, parentheses, the best that you can do. <laughs> All right. I think that's about it for Arthur. Well, next week we are going to take a very different tack. <laughs> A hard U-turn, I'd say. As we look at the vital, central romance (laughs) of the 1933 film King Kong. I can't wait to talk about this movie. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. This was a suggestion from a listener, so we are happy to do Oh, and just to be clear, we are talking about the 1933 King Kong. Streaming now on HBO Max. Yes. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find this show. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Arthur? I think you should get caught between the moon and New York City. (laughs) Which I guess means, like, fly a plane above New York or a helicopter? Yeah, a helicopter at night over New York. Okay. Great place to flirt famously quiet environment where you can really bond yeah um i don't know go in with martha i think that you should be open to whatever arrangement makes you and your partner the happiest be that an open relationship like martha suggests or otherwise well until next time i'm a ginger and i'm gay so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye bye now Listen to your heart, listen to the beat, listen to the rhythm.